Good morning and welcome. My name is Scott Warner and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And um, first, uh, I told Chef Michael here that there was somebody special in the audience. Um, Edith Smith, Edith, could you stand up? Well, you are standing up and just wave for a second. And some of you may have seen Edith here before, but Edith uh, makes me feel so young. I pick up vibes from her. She's 105. So, and, and like that. And a really good cook. Yes, and she's a great cook too. And you know that line in um, When Harry Met Sally, I'll, I'll have whatever she's having because I want to be like that when I grow up. Today's program, which is in a way, it's, it's a way of looking inside chef's kitchens or Chicago's evolving restaurant scene. The topic of the program is how can the cherished small guy survive? And our program will be presented by a, quote, small guy who knows indeed how to survive and thrive in the incredibly competitive restaurant world. And small entrepreneur chef that he is, Michael Lakowitz has always had a giant reputation as one of the Chicago area's most acclaimed fine dining chefs. He oversees a culinary destination of three French-themed restaurants all together in Winnetka, Georges Trois, Aboyer, and Silencieux. He's a native Chicagoan who worked in his family's restaurant business before earning a degree from the Culinary Institute of America in New York. Everybody calls that the other CIA. He has trained at some of the finest restaurants in France and earned his own four-star rating for his Glen Ellen restaurant, Les Du Gros. He's accomplished so much that I could go on forever, but just a few more things about him. He worked as an assistant for legendary chef Jean Bonchet at Le Francais in Wheeling, and it's only fitting that years later in 2019, last year, his restaurant, Georges Trois, became the first suburban restaurant to be named Restaurant of the Year by the Jean Bonchet Awards. That's our local food Oscars. Another major accomplishment, Michael has gained widespread attention for his weight loss regimen that saw him fall from more than 400 pounds to not much more than 200 in less than two years. And if that doesn't tip the scales in his favor, I don't know what would. So let us welcome small guy chef, Michael Lakowitz. I read about that, so it's public now. Oh, that's all right, okay. that's okay. Yeah, he didn't out me about the weight loss. It's definitely, things are better than they were before, that's for sure. So I am Michael Lakowitz, and um, I was billed as Master Chef Michael Lakowitz, which is, I'm not really sure about that title, but I'm going to take it as a gift. Uh, speaking of which, I did bring a couple treats, so please feel free to go help yourself because uh, the, the pot and, and everything that I have there is going to have to come with me when I leave. But I have potato and truffle soup and Grand Marnier chocolate truffles. So please feel free to pop up and it's not at, at the least bit disrespectful while I'm talking to go over there and grab something to eat because if I were in your seat, I would, just so you know. So I'm going to give you a little synopsis and, and, and kind of a, a bit of background just so you have a jumping off point with me. Um, I was lit, quite literally born into this business. I was born in the apartment above uh, my grandpa's restaurant, uh, Mr. G's on Fullerton 
and Costner on the west side, 4318 West Fullerton. And it was a little mom pa, kind of an Italian-American snack shop. And they, it was a scratch house. They made everything from scratch. My grandfather was there at 6 in the morning cooking, and he was cooking all day long. And they had, at that point, there was, um, there was open campus for lunches, and they would do a monster lunch business, at least three, sometimes four lunch services a day. Um, and that was, um, it was so lucrative for them. And they closed at 7 p.m. And they did a small dinner business, but by 7 p.m. they were closed and they were walking home. They lived two blocks away from the restaurant. And um, when they closed up the campuses because of the, this is in the mid-70s, into the late 70s, when there was the drug problem was just explosive and, and they, they had to keep kids on campus. When they closed campus, it, it started to reduce the amount of lunch business that they saw and the business shrunk and it became less and less uh, viable as a business. They were there for 25 years. And I remember, uh, this is, Geez, I, I, was, I was a kid. I think I was 14 years old, maybe 13 years old. And we were closing up the restaurant for the last time. They had sold the building. And they had this monster butcher block uh, table. And this thing must have weighed 2,000 pounds. It was huge. And it was thick. It was a good three, four inches thick. And they don't even make these anymore. And he had to salt it every night because of the bacterial growth. And it was really a unique piece and he had everything that he needed on the slicer and, and uh, mixers, et cetera, were on that table. And when we moved everything off of that table to move them out of the, out of the restaurant and sell those pieces off, there was, on the back of this table, this butcher block, there were all these hack marks in the back of this butcher block. And my grandmother walked back and I said, Graham, what, what, is, what are all these marks on this table? Uh, she said, oh, that's all the marks where I used to chop with the butcher knife so I wouldn't kill your grandfather. <laughs> so that's a little bit of an insight into what it's like to work with family. Now, fast forward uh, a bunch of years, my brother and I opened up a restaurant called Le Dugros in Glen Ellen. Before that, we worked together at Riverside Golf Club. That's where we found our investors. And I was the executive chef. I was 25 years old. And it was... It was the, my first serious chef gig. And they were paying me a lot of money for my age and for that time. And I was a maniac. I burned through five assistant managers. And the manager, the general manager, Kevin, he loved me because the, the, the membership loved me. And I, and I did a good job for them. And they, they really appreciated and respected what I was delivering for them. Because, you know, country club food was a little bit lackluster, especially back then. And we brought it up to a different level. And... Um, I burned through all these assistant managers, and the fifth one had just left. No notice, just left. I chased him out the door. And Kevin comes up to me and goes, all right, Sheffer, we got a problem. I'm not sure what we're going to do here. It was 6 o'clock just before dinner service on a Friday night. And after that little statement of I'm not sure what we're going to do here, he left and went home. And uh, I took care of dinner service. He came back the next day. And I said, you know what? Why don't you hire my brother? He was already a bartender in the 19th hole, the golf lounge, for the gentleman, and uh, they called him T-Bone. His name's Tommy, because he knew every sports score. He knew every, everything that was going. He, all the, the guys loved him, because he was a guy's guy, and he loved all sports. I said, you know what? At least Tommy's got some heart, and he's not going to cry every time I raise my voice. So now my brother's 22 years old, and he's the assistant manager at this golf club. I'm the executive chef, and we're living together on Cermak Avenue. This was like two rattlesnakes in a bag at this point, because we were crazy. And I was, I'm going to be very transparent, I was drug-addled 
I was so high all the time and so drunk all the time that I don't remember much, but I, I do remember stacks of paychecks on the table because we didn't need them. So we, that's all we did was work, and we were making plenty of money. And then uh, every once in a while, once a month, we would cash those checks, and we'd go to the casino, we'd lose everything, come back and start over again. And we went on for about two years like that, and then we raised the money from, in, from investors that were all members of the club, and we opened up Lady Grow in Glen Allen. We opened up Lady Grow to great acclaim. Right? It was terrific. started out as a very simple bistro, and it just got away from me, and it turned into this four-star. The entire menu was written in French. All the descriptions, the waiters had to explain every single menu item. It was exhausting because I felt that that's the way it had to be. Right? Now, my, my time that I spent working for Bonchet was very limited. It was four months. I worked for Bonchet for four months. I worked for Roland and Mary Beth for two and a half years. And then I went back as a partner with, uh, with, with Mike Moran to, to take over the restaurant as the last chef at Le Francais. Uh, but my time with Bonchet was limited. But when I opened up Les Dugros and the press started to expound upon my background and preach that I was the next coming of Jean Bonchet. Bonchet had been out of the limelight for a little while, so he glommed onto that, and all of a sudden I had worked for him as his protege. And that was not the case, but I, I mean, I have a lot of experience with him, and I was very close with him uh, till the day he died. But I have more experience with Patrick Chabert, and Patrick Chabert was sponsored by Bonchet for his citizenship, uh, and he was the chef de cuisine for Jean, for 10 years, and then the chef de cuisine for Mary Beth and Roland for 10 years. And that's why Mary Beth and Roland were able to elevate Le Francais to a different status after Bonchet sold it to them uh, because Patrick was still there. So it was this hybrid of this elegant um, Pacific Rim Asian influenced cuisine paired with French food. It was extraordinary. And for the time, it was cutting edge, right? And that was, a lot of that was due to Patrick being the solid fundamental technician that he always was for Jean Bonchet, and Roland being progressive and pushing his cuisine forward. So that's what made Le Francais just grow in its, it, I mean, exponentially. It, it, it morphed from a, a local treasure into a national uh, uh, entity that people, everybody knew all over the country. And that was because Roland and Mary Beth pushed those boundaries, and Patrick kept everything fundamentally based in classicism. So now, if you fast forward to today, at Les Nomades, where Roland and Mary Beth are still operating. They're divorced now, but Roland is the chef and Mary Beth is the front of the house. Roland is still doing very similar food and hasn't really changed his menu much over the last, you know, 20 years. And, and you, get, you get to the point where you're comfortable and you don't care what anybody thinks about how progressive you are. As long as the, the cuisine is strong and you're proud of what you're producing, then, you, you know, you can, you can rest. He can, he can rest on that. He really can. I mean... He's an iconic chef, Roland. Um, but this is why he doesn't have a Michelin star. He doesn't have a Michelin star because what defines you as a French restaurant? What, what, what sets you apart from other French restaurants? And if you're still doing... And I'm not taking anything away from him. He's brilliant. He's one of my mentors, and I respect him more than most chefs. Uh, but if you're still doing the same dish that you did 30 years ago, then it becomes... Uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous, and, and not only is it going to become diluted from being done so many times from so many different people, it becomes unidentifiable as yours anymore. Michelin is very interesting. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's a reason I'm referencing Michelin right now because I'm going to come back to that in a second. But um, that's what's happening with, with Roland at, at, at Les Nomades, and that's why he hasn't reached the, the stratospheric level that he reached when he was at Le Francais. 
because there's a lot of players that came in to the to the market that overshadowed what he's doing now. And French fell out of favor. Now French, it's a very cyclical business that we're in, in the restaurant business. And French has been on top and on the bottom of that cycle four or five times since I've been doing this. I've been doing this for 35 years now. And each time it rises, it's on top for a shorter period of time. And each time it falls to the bottom, it's on the bottom for a longer period of time. Because there's so many different things that come into the, into the public view while it's kind of languishing down towards the bottom of its notoriety. And we're, we're riding a little bit of a wave now again, but it's not the same wave it was in years past. So now what I found happening at Restaurant Michael was um, kind of this situation where it was, it was kind of stable, it was kind of steady, but I could see it petering out. After 14 years, it was a long time for a restaurant. 14 years is like dog years for the restaurant business. I mean, you've been around for a while, and people uh, age with your restaurant. When I started, they were in their 50s. My, 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 most of my guests were in their 50s. By the time I closed the restaurant last March and renovated for two months, they were in their 70s. You can't eat the same way anymore. You can't drink the same way anymore. Snowbirds six months out of the year or permanently instead of three months out of the year. And to be very frank and honest and forward about this, it is really challenging to bring in people who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s that are dining in the same restaurant with people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. It just doesn't work. It's not a solid business plan because uh, you're, you're looking at two completely separate parts of the demographic, and they don't commingle as well publicly in restaurants as they do at home in family events and things of that nature. So I had to make a decision, right? And I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna alienate my current guest because you gotta dance with the one that brung you. And they carried me for a long time and were very supportive of myself and my staff. So now I was faced with a bit of a conundrum. I didn't know what to do uh, because I could roll the dice and do this really progressive, youthful, uh, driven concept and it'll fall flat on its face, and I've, at the same time, I've upset the people who have been supporting me for 15 years, uh, and then I'm dead in the water. And I did all of this and made these decisions, it took about a year. I took a consensus in the dining room, and it was, a, it was a straw poll. I went from table to table, and I asked every single guest, young, old, and in between, what would you like to see happen here? And almost across the board, I got similar responses. Everybody who was 60 and over didn't want me to change anything. They loved that it was comfortable, and it was quiet, it was conversation friendly, it was accessible, and it was priced fairly for the product that was being provided. And everybody 50 and under wanted me to change everything. Right? So now, that helped me, at, not at all. It did not give me much, at the time I didn't think it helped me, and as it turns out it was, it was a substantial help. Um, the people who were 15 under who said they wanted me to change everything, the most common comment that I got was we love the food, we love the staff, it's comfortable, it's a little dated and stodgy, but we don't want to eat with our grandparents' friends. Okay, I understand that. And we don't want to listen to Rat Pack while we're doing it. And we don't want to feel like we're in our parents' living room. And we, So, okay, I get the point. Shut up and finish your dinner. And uh, so what I did was I went back and... I needed to decide how I was going to grab this capital, 
because I didn't have the money to be able to gut the property and pay my staff while I was closed and pay off all my suppliers because I was on 30-day terms, which stretched to 60, you know, because I've been doing it for so long with the same players and the same suppliers. Everybody knew they were going to get paid. So when I stretched out to 60, nobody said boo. So now all of a sudden I closed and I knew that I had all these payables and I had this staff that I had to pay and I had rent that had to be paid. And my landlord was very cooperative. He gave me two months rent abatement. Uh, but I take care of the property like I own it. So he knows that he doesn't have to chase me with five-day notices. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a good tenant for all intents and purposes. Um, so how do I find this money? As it turns out, money was not hard to find. It's, as a matter of fact, it's very easy to find money. It's everywhere. So all you got to do is go up and grab it. The problem is it's not easy to find the right money. Because if you get the wrong participants, oh man, you're looking for a shitstorm here. It's going to be a mess. Because if you go to people to invest $50,000 who are looking for a dividend or return on their money to pay their mortgage, it's the wrong person. It's the wrong person because it's a restaurant after all. What I was looking for were people that had $50,000 that they were considering monopoly money. Right, that this is expendable. It's going to the casino money. It's, I don't need to get this money back. I don't care what happens. I just want to play the game kind of money. That was one facet. The second and more important facet was, do they have skills that they could bring to the table to push my business forward that I don't have? Which is to say, everything besides cooking. I cook really, really well. I'm strong in the kitchen. That's it. All of my assets lie behind the kitchen door, right? And I, I happen to be well-spoken, and I'm charming in the dining room, and I'm able to talk to guests, and I'm able to um, convey my message and explain the dish, etc. But beyond that, my business acumen is not uh, what it should be to drive forward a business plan. It's really not. It's, everything that I do is chicken wire and chewing gum. Right? It's, I, I can keep it together, and I'm going to move some from here, and we'll put it here, and I'm a little upside down here, but it's Martin Luther King Day on Monday, so everything will come in from the weekend on Tuesday. It'll be fantastic. And then I found myself doing these ridiculous loans, right? and they're basically, I can get a better percentage of interest on the street from a loan shark. They're 32 to 35% loans. They're, it's business funding, right? And it's all started with uh, dining a la carte, Anyone remember dining a la carte or these ridiculous companies that would give you $50,000 and take back $100,000 and they would take it back based on people swiping their credit cards that were members of dining a la carte. Well, these companies were all gobbled up and they became Merchants Advance or Biz to Credit or all these different. And if any of those companies want to sue me for saying this, knock yourself out. I don't care because they almost put me under. They almost put me under because I didn't realize what I was getting into. Now, it's not their fault because I went into it with my eyes open. But you get one of these loans going and you're paying back 35% interest, and it's coming out not as a check that you write monthly, I'll get to you as soon as I can. No, it's a direct ACH debit from your account every time somebody swipes their card. And you're, now the $50,000 that I took, or whatever that dollar amount, that's gone. That money was used to clean up sales tax, it was used to clean up past debt, it was used for me to pay my rent at home, because I hadn't taken a check for eight years. I took what I needed when I could. Right, And that was the, the, the slow, downward slope of what was happening at Restaurant Michael. 
So now I, I fast forward and I, I find these investors and I get these people. One of them is a, a partner at a prominent law firm. One of them is, is heavily into to digital marketing. Another one is a partner at a major accounting firm. Another one is, uh, uh, is, is an attorney but made all of his money in real estate. So I, as I, when I found one, they, it was a domino effect. And they all, because when you find somebody who's a decent human being that actually is a good business person as well, uh, they seem to, to, to travel in groups, which is, which is really nice. Um, and once we got the ball rolling, it was very easy to get this put together. So I took $600,000 in capital from seven people, seven, or seven couples, as it were. Um, and I maintained 54% ownership. Now, 54% in my book of something substantial is a hell of a lot better than 100% of something that's going under. So that's, I had to humble myself a little bit and say, this is what I'm going to do, and we're going to give this a shot. And it's not just necessarily throwing pasta at the ceiling to see what sticks. This is more of a calculated, controlled burn. <clears throat> it took me a year to put the, the, the plan together and the agreement together, because every time I presented the agreement to a different investor, it came back with 27 red lines from their attorney. And, then I had, and so I went through that. After a year, finally, I was, ah, this is the agreement. Either it works or it does not. I'll miss you. Come and eat. And then everybody signed. But when I went to my attorney, who was my original partner, who put me in business in Winnetka 15 years ago, <clears throat> I went to him and I said, okay, this is what we're going to do, Will. This is going to be great. He goes, nah, wait a minute. We've been doing this for 15 years, this ridiculous dance. So sit down and shut up. This time, we're going to aim you before you shoot. Because you just like to spray bullets all over the place and see what's going to happen. So he, we, we targeted the efforts, and we put together the agreement. And once we got through all the red lines and all the attorneys and everybody else, I got all the capital together, <clears throat> and I put together the plan. I found the, con the contractor, who was magic, by the way. The contractor that I hired that did the work in Winnetka was done six days early, 8% under budget. Right? It's a unicorn, right? Who the hell does that? Because you think of a contractor, I was panicked because I had never used this contractor before. The contractor that built the addition onto the restaurant that became George Trois was a jobber. And he would have never had the resources to get this. I'd still be working on it. But I chose another contractor that I met at the gym that I work out at. I didn't know he was a contractor. He didn't know I was a chef. And we got put together by mutual friends. And he walked in and he was pointing out solutions to all the problems. So I talked to him again. And he put together a quote and a bid. And I was like, all right, listen. This is not my dream home. This is my business. I don't have time for overages. I don't have time for overruns. And I don't have time for people not showing up, whether you're subcontractors or yourself. And I made that very clear. I also told them, I'm kind of a kamikaze, and I got nothing to lose. And I know where you live. So we're going to get this shit done, and we're going to get it done in a timely fashion. And he did. And they delivered on a dime. And, you know, when you think of a contract, you think of the Money Pit, the movie with uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, two years down the road, yeah, we'll be done in two weeks, right? Bathtub falls to the floor, there's no staircase. That's what I was afraid of, because I was running out of money. It was already, I was already running out of money. <clears throat> so we get, the, we get the project done, and I broke it into three separate restaurants. There's three separate entities. Uh, one is called Aboye. Aboye means the barker, right? Uh, the reason I called it the barker is the barker means... Uh, Aboyer in the French brigade system is the expediter in the kitchen who barks out orders all night long, ordering this, ordering that, table this, table that. So that's the Aboyer. It, it implies it's going to be a louder, more lively atmosphere. And, and it certainly is. The second is, where, uh, is, the, is the front third of what used to be Restaurant Michael, and that's called Silencieux. Silencieux implies 
that it's going to be more conversation friendly, that it's, but not a library. And that became a little bit of a hitch and a giddy up as I got started here. Um, everybody expected this was going to be hushed, right? But it's not hushed. People are in there. It's about 26 to 28 seats, depending on how I've it set. And people are having fun and they're having a good time. And it is a younger crowd now. So the older guests who go in there are kind of, you know, it's all hard surfaces. There's no carpet. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, padded chairs. None of that. It's, it's more uh, modern and contemporary. So I made some arrangements to make that a little bit more muted and a little quieter and people quieted down a little bit. But <clears throat> essentially what Silencio was and is to this day is an homage to my guests who have been coming there for 15 years. I wanted them to have somewhere to land where they were going to have a restaurant Michael-esque experience. And that's what I've given them. It's $85 a person. It's a three-course prefix menu. You choose the menu. You have all these appetizers, entrees, and desserts to select from. It's a little bit more um, service that's recognizable as Restaurant Michael and what it used to be. And, um, and it's specifically designed to be smaller than Aboyer because I want it to disappear. I don't want it to be there forever. I want it to be transitional. The goal here is to uh, duplicate Aboyer in different markets, not Silonsu. Silonsu is a mid-level fine dining experience, which is what Restaurant Michael was. And a mid-level French dining experience, mid-level fine dining in general, is if it's not dead yet, it's, it's on life support. Because if you walk into, put yourself in this scenario, you walk in, you're 40, 40 to 50 years old, it's 6.30, it's Wednesday night, kids got school tomorrow, you got three of them, there's 14 emails to respond to, you just put in a 14-hour day and you got two more 14-hour days ahead of you. You walk in and you see white tablecloths, Ugh, this is going to be two hours. I, I'm sure it's going to be lovely, but I don't have time, and I'm exhausted, and the kids have got to go to bed, and all this craziness. So what I saw was this. I saw this, this constant decline of what was happening in Restaurant Michael. So <clears throat> I needed to have, as I mentioned, I needed to have that little homage or that thank you to my guests who have been coming for a long time. So that was Silencio, right? And I put in double insulated exterior doors between Aboyer and Silencio. That way I could open up the expanse of the entire property and do larger parties up to 80 people. Uh, but otherwise it's broken down into about 48 seats in Aboyer and 24 to 26 seats, up to 30 depending on how it's set in Silencio. Now what's happening is interesting because while those two restaurants are operating independently, I have George Trois. <clears throat> George Trois is me. Everything that I produce at George Trois, I present and I explain. And so you basically for the evening, for $215 a person, for a 12-course menu, you've purchased me as well as the food because I'm going to be with you all night long explaining what you're having to whatever level you're comfortable. If you're doing business, then I step back. And if you're, having, if you're a foodie, and that's 90% of the guests that come into George Trois are foodies. It's a destination restaurant. People are coming there because they want to see what we're doing, which is great. It's an honor. It's a privilege to be able to do that. After all these years, for people still to... You know, tonight I have 16 guests in George Trois. That's a full boat. That's it. 12 courses for 16 guests delivered by me. Hey, listen, I'm 50 years old. This is, I got the passion, but my wheels are going to be shot pretty soon. So that's a lot of running around. That's all I can do at George Trois. And quite frankly, I'm going to make more in George Trois tonight than I will in Aboyer and Silencer combined with a full boat in both of those restaurants as well. Because it's targeted service, it's very carefully curated, it's put together so that, and it's designed for you to have a wonderful evening, right? Aboyer, it was a free fall. You're going to have the evening that you want to have at Aboyer, 
It's completely up to you. If you walk in discontent and you want to walk out discontent, that is your choice. I'm not going to entertain you while you're doing it. I'm going to do the best I can to make you happy, and then I'm walking away. That's, and that's what I've instructed the staff to do because a lot of people come in there just, you know, some of them are surly or some of them are not, their expectations are not in line with reality. You know, they're coming in for a restaurant, Michael Jr. Well, you're in the wrong place. That's, Ceylon Sur is going to be the closest bet for you. Well, that's more expensive. Well, yes, yes, it is. Well, why? Well, because I'm selling real estate. There's 24 seats in there. It's Saturday night, and there's a line out the door for Ceylon Sur. So you know what? That's the Disneyland philosophy. When the parking lot is full, you raise the price. No, I haven't done that. And I'm not going to do that, because I want Ceylon Sur to disappear. What we want to do is we want to have aboyers stamped across the landscape in the western suburbs and the northern suburbs. And uh, I already have this, the plans for the second one are already in the works right now. And the partners are, are they're throwing money at it. And it's really hard for me not to just put on sticky gloves and catch all of it. But it's a mistake, because we're not done figuring out what's happening in Aboye. And that's kind of rounding out the conversation to get where this topic is going to end up landing. This, the business is in trouble. The restaurant business is in trouble. I'm in a, a small restaurant group, right? And it's growing. The George Trois group is growing. But small restaurants and independent operators are getting gobbled up. I am in the same boat in my industry as brick-and-mortar retail stores are in, right? So same storm, different boat. We are not able to um, spread the expense out over multiple locations yet. We're getting there. But three restaurants at one property, that's not, we're not Boca, right? We're not Let Us Entertain You. We're not one-off hospitality. And that's the goal, is to get to that point. But these groups... The Alinea Group is another one. These groups that are, that are forming and that are consolidating debt and, and buying each other out are becoming more and more the norm. And the independent contractor like myself or the independent operator like myself, we're getting gobbled up by these groups or we're disappearing completely because we can't compete. We don't have the same purchasing power. We don't have the same marketing abilities. We don't have the same ability to spread the expense out over multiple locations or multiple operations, like I mentioned. So a publicist that costs me $3,000 a month costs me $3,000 a month. That's a big cash hit for a small operation. If you're spending you know, five to $7,000 a month and you have 18 restaurants in your group and that person works internally for you and they have three people working for them, it's, it becomes a lot less painful. It's not quite as much of a cash flow crunch when you have each of, each of the restaurants in the group kind of participating into a common fund for that particular expense. It's really become cumbersome for us because now we don't have the negotiating power either. I can't go to a publicist and say, listen, I got about two grand a month I could spend with you. They say, well, you know, that's gonna cover paper clips and envelopes. All right, well, that's a problem because I got paper clips and envelopes, I don't have a publicist. So I've decided, no, I'm, I'm not gonna go with a publicist right now. I've decided I'm going to take three months off because this is money not well spent. To not spend enough, I'm not getting return on the investment. But to spend anything and not get that return on the investment, I may as well take the money and throw it in the air. So now I've had to step back and make decisions so that I can figure out exactly what direction we're going to go with this. And the direction I've chosen is I've hired an events person, and she's marvelous. So far, she's proven that she's going to bring back more than I'm paying her. Um, in spades, actually. She's, she's, she's bringing back a substantial amount of revenue. But she's also not only just uh, marketing and selling events, but she's doing 
uh, digital and social media, uh, which is incredibly important. Now, everybody's got a three-second to six-second attention span, so everybody's swiping left or swiping right. Nobody's paying attention to anything. Back in the day, 30 years ago, I'm, yeah, I mean, I've got old in this business. 30 years ago, if you get a review in the Tribune or the Sun-Times or Chicago Magazine, uh, it, it, it'll, it'll bump up your reservations for a month. Now you got a day. There's six hours of phone calls after the reservations. Stop, because there's three other reviews that just came out that same day, and they're all digital, and they're all on your phone while you're on the train or on the bus or on the, uh, in the car. So there's really no way for us to leverage that stuff anymore. So now it becomes a question of how important is a publicist? Well, it's important to have conduit to the media. But if that media in Phil Vitell and Jeff Ruby and all these different independent writers are coming directly to me because they can message me on Facebook, well, what the hell am I paying a publicist for? And I've asked that question to publicists and they get upset. So well, I'm sorry that you're upset, but I need some accountability for what I'm paying you for. Tell me exactly what $2,500 a month is, but how many hours is that? And to what are you allocating those hours? They can't do it. They, or they won't do it. And I think that they're feeling the same uh, crunch in their industry that I'm feeling in mine. But they don't know how to explain it. So well, I'm really sorry. It's kind of your job to explain things. You're a publicist for the love of God. You can't explain your own position and your own, uh, your own worth then that's an issue. You figure that out and I'll come back to you in about a year. And so that now has left me in a position where we're gonna rely more heavily on marketing and, and advertising. Now print ads, we know for the most part are, are dead. There's not a hell of a lot of worth in those print ads, but they're still selling them for top dollar. Now the ones that we're gonna use are for the village of Kenilworth and Northbrook and Winnetka and Wilmette and Glenview and Glencoe, all the surrounding areas, and they all have specific niche markets that they're reaching. And, they're, and they are actually going to every single home, and they are in every single medical office and dental office, et cetera. So it's a good bet that somebody's gonna see them that would not have seen them had I not spent the money on that. And I'm gonna spend less on those ads in marketing than I am or have been with a publicist. So it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll those dice and see where that takes me. But the point I'm trying to make here is we're spitballing and we're trying to, to, to figure out what the business looks like in a year while we're trying to figure out what dinner service looks like tonight. Because I don't have this infrastructure of 20 different management levels that are helping us to uh, navigate through our days and our weeks and our months. So it was for years and years, it was the Michael and Sergio show. And Sergio is my general manager and my partner. And he started with me when he was 14 years old, when he was a busboy at Riverside Golf Club. And he just kind of came with me and tagged along to every restaurant and every operation that I was in going forward. And now fast forward 24 years, he's got five kids. Two of them are my, are my godchildren. And he's been with me forever. Now, he has become really, really important for me because he is the face of what's happening at 64 Green Bay Road. But he has no idea how to manage. Zero. He is charming. He is well-spoken, especially with wine. His palate is exceptional. But when I ask him to do something in the office, he's a knucklehead. So I've had to hire somebody who does operations and who has a beverage background in managing the bar. Well, that's expensive because I can't have them participate in the tip pool. Now, Sergio participates in the tip pool because he is an hourly employee. 
and hourly employees can participate in the tip pool because it is a tip or a gratuity. If I decide when I might have to, if my hand is, is forced, when the minimum wage goes to $15 an hour across the entire state and they do away with the earned tip credit, which is, everybody know what the earned tip credit is? Because the earned tip credit is, if you're making $5.90 a, a per, an hour as a waiter, as long as your tips bring you above the minimum wage, then we're compliant as an operation, as, as the house. But if you don't, then we have to make that up. You have to, you have to hit minimum wage. Now, my waiters are making three times minimum wage. But it's, it's a unique set of circumstances in Winnetka. If they decide they're going to get away with that or go away from that earned tip credit altogether, I have to pay every waiter $15 an hour. That's unsustainable in, in, the, in the way that I'm doing things now, which means I have to take everything from a gratuity into a service charge. And if we call it a service charge and it's noted as a service charge across the board in all of my dealings, then I can use that money in any way that I want to pay the kitchen, to pay myself, to pay the staff. To, I can do anything I want with that money. It becomes not revenue, but it becomes a source of income that I can use to pay out. So um, that's coming. There's so many different balls in the air and I still got to cook. If my, my job is 10% cooking and 90%, what the hell's going on here? I have no idea what to do here. How am I gonna solve this problem? And if I linger in the problem and don't get into the solution, it overwhelms me and I shut down. And then we have a problem because then I can't even focus on cooking. And that's what I do. And if you invested $50,000 or $100,000, I have one person for $150,000. If you invested your money in me, you want your Michael on the stove. <laughs> that's where I belong, right? Because anywhere else, my time and, and my efforts are wasted because I'm spinning my wheels in something that I should not be involved in. The more involved in the minutia that I become, the more bogged down I get and the less creative I can be. So now we have a problem because I'm too big to be small and too small to be big. So what do we do? Well, we start to go towards growth. And how do we go towards that growth? Well, we have to have everything locked down at 64 Green Bay Road before I can cookie cutter another aboyer somewhere else. Because if I can't figure it out with 48 seats, how the hell are we going to do it with 90 seats? And a bar with 30 seats instead of a bar with 10. It becomes magnified. It's like scaling something up from the research and development bench into production. A minute mistake here turns into this crazy amount of waste when you scale up. And that's what we're doing. We're in the process of scaling up now. Now, again, the money is easy to find. They're throwing it, literally throwing it at me. All right, how much you need, where do you want it, what accounts are going to, and, and what do you want me to make it out to? And I, I have to painfully slow them down because I want to take that money and say, okay, I'm going to allocate this here and it's going to go, this is going to go into the next project and this is how we're going to do that. But then there's tax implications. There's so many things to consider that I don't consider because that's not my wheelhouse. So I have these people who are looking at these things carefully with me. But in the interim, while this is all happening, I have a full house at George Twan tonight. And that's a cumbersome situation because I have to make sure that I make those people happy. Because you know what else has happened over the last 12, 15 years is the internet. And everybody's got a soapbox. So if I piss you off in any way, shape, or form, it becomes magnified to the nth degree like I killed your puppy in front of your grandchild on the street and laughed about it with his blood on my shirt as I was leaving. It's brutal. Yelp, Yelp has jumped the shark. Anytime something ends up on South Park or The Simpsons, it's no longer viable, right? It's a joke, but it's painful to watch. 
And if I look at Yelp, I don't look at Yelp anymore because it makes me want to choke somebody out because it's ridiculous. There is no way for us to go back at these bad reviews because it looks like sour grapes. And, and I always have egg on my face because I don't go at it gently. <laughs> I'm aggressive across the board with this. It's like, I'm sorry, but you're lying. I can't believe you would put this out there. What is wrong with you? But there's no recourse. There is no accountability. And they hide. People hide behind their screens. And they don't realize what they're doing to our business and the money they're taking out of the pockets of the employees of the operation because you didn't get your table fast enough. Every bad Yelp review or open table review or Facebook review, they all start exactly the same. Worst dot, 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 restaurant dot, 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 experience dot, 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 ever, explanation mark. If I could give zero stars, I would. Let me start by saying I've eaten everywhere all over the world. Oh, Jesus Christ, now I know I'm in for some shit because this person has got an ax to grind and it is gonna be like nine miles of bad road, and it is. Every single time it plays out to this ridiculous scenario that never happened. What, what, it is such an, an incredibly difficult experience to have when you're on stage all the time for everybody, no matter what, and they can all lay you open for no reason whatsoever, or for a good reason. If it's a good reason, I want to make it better. I want to, we, we reach out to say, how can we make your experience better? How do I get you back? How do I keep you as a customer? But if you're going in this realm where what you're saying is so egregious and so almost libelous, there's, there's nothing I can do except ignore it because the best response at that point is no response. It doesn't always play well because it looks like I'm not paying attention or it looks like so I just checked out of it completely I have somebody who's handling all that stuff for me So if Sergio comes and says do you see this last review on open table? I said no, I don't tell me I don't want to know. No, it was good I don't still don't tell me if I believe the good stuff. I got to believe the bad stuff So I don't believe any of it. It's all bullshit if you ask me because it's all driven by people's emotions and did they have a good day? Did they have a bad day? Were they fighting on the way home? I don't care about any of this stuff. Was it my ex-girlfriend? Was it my ex-girlfriend's mother? Was it an employee that I had to let go? Was it somebody who's got an extra grind for something that has nothing to do with their restaurant experience? All these things are nip, 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 nip. They all take little bites out of the restaurant. And they all take little bites out of what's happening to my staff. And then I have to go back and explain, okay, this is how we're going to handle this. And I don't always know how to handle it. Social media is the Wild West. The internet is the Wild West. It's not, there's no accountability. So all these online reviews are just ridiculous. It's ridiculous because what, listen, food critics in general, and I respect the Chicago food critics. The food media in Chicago is pretty, is pretty respectable. It really is. But what the hell qualifies you to be a food critic? You eat? That's like saying I'm, I go to the dentist and I tell my dentist I did my own root canal because I brush my teeth every day. It's ridiculous. It's a flawed concept. It makes no sense to me. Now, I'll take all of the four-star reviews and all the wonderful accolades the media has bestowed upon me. I'll take them. I'm, I'm very grateful. Phil Vitell, every time Phil Vitell writes about me, it looks like my mom is having an affair with this guy. <laughs> God bless her. Take one for the team. I love it. That's fabulous. But I never, I am still on pins and needles until the review comes out. And he's been writing about me for 25 years I, at a high level, which is, I'm grateful. But I never know. I never know. They, Chicago Magazine was in for a photo shoot on Tuesday night for Silon Sioux. 
Now, I know it's going to be for the, the, the best new restaurants, because right? that's the April issue. But I don't know what the hell they're going to say. I have no idea. I don't, know, I don't know when they were there. I don't want to know when they were there, because I can't change my cooking for one person at one table for one evening. So they get what they get, and I get what I get. But I never know what's going to happen. And I, I've been clean for nine years, right? I got clean and sober nine years ago. As a matter of fact, uh, March 17th is, gonna, is my clean date. And uh, man, before that, this is as good as it gets, by the way. This is, it's never going to get this good again, so I hope you're enjoying the view, because it was really bad 10 years ago. It was really bad. Excuse me. And when I got clean, um, all the mirrors came back in my house, and I realized that 430 pounds did not look healthy, and it did not seem to be sustainable as far as, far as going forward. So I made some decisions, and I started to get a, a little bit more of a healthy lifestyle. And um, so that's, that's how that all unfolded. But as I was getting clean, and I was going through the first couple of years of the wreckage that I had, just the, the, the restaurants should have closed. Right? At that point, it was just Restaurant Michael. I should, I should have closed Restaurant Michael. But I am so hard-headed. I call it persistent now. But my head is like stone. I'm not closing it. I'm not closing it. I'm not closing it. I'm going to take this dope fiend 35% loan, and I'm going to keep it open, and I'm going to keep water over the gills, and we're going to keep moving. And I'm going to figure it out. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And if eventually, I, you know, God gets involved in my life. I don't know if you're religious. I don't care if you're religious. I don't care if you care if I'm religious. But I know that there's a higher power, and it's not me. <laughs> That's enough. And I also know that there is no way for me to sustainably go forward um, trying to do everything myself. So I decided that I'm going to start to listen to some other people. Now, this was a, a revelation at 41 years old to listen to somebody else besides the 12 voices in my head. And it served me. It served me. But I go to a lot of meetings. And I have a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor. I have sponsees. Who the hell... 10 years ago, would come to me to sponsor them. Unless you want to go to Thelma and Louise right off the cliff together. Fantastic. Right? But now, you know, I have keys to my parents' house. They took that shit away 12 years ago. I said, we're going to take those back. Just, just knock. You know, that was the, the, that was the answer from my parents. And, uh, but now I have trust from my family and from my friends. And in recovery, I've had good things happen. I've had bad things happen. I got married in recovery. I got divorced in recovery. Uh, you know, I've had surgeries in recovery. I've had to take main pain medication in recovery. I've had to do these things. The reason I'm mentioning this is not because I want you to clap, but I want you to know that this is rampant in our industry. It's rampant because I'm not addicted to drugs or booze or food or sex or gambling. I'm addicted to not feeling my feelings. And if my feelings are getting beat to shit, on social media and reviews, and upside down, and barely getting my nose above water financially, and still cooking at a four-star level, and sweating out reviews from, from, from Phil Vitell and Chicago Magazine, hey, listen, it becomes overwhelming, right? I'm not made of steel. I wanna tell you that I'm made of steel, and when I was getting high, and I was constantly drunk, and I was always under the influence, I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. As it turns out, I'm 6'1 and brittle, especially now. And I was always really kind of fragile, especially in my ego. So those are all ego hits. And those ego hits make you want to just kind of disappear. And so, so what do you do? Well, you know, it's the end of the night. Everybody else is, is having a cocktail or two. So I have a cocktail or two. And then I go home and I have a cocktail or six. And, and it turns into a, a handle of scotch every night with 40 pain pills. And 
12,000 calories. You know what it takes to maintain 430 pounds? It's a full-time job. It's work to put that much food in your body. And I did, and I, did. I wasn't hungry. <laughs> it was nothing to do with hungry. I just felt that dopamine release, and I felt the serotonin being released in my brain, and I felt all of those things, and it was, I was numb. And sometimes I just want to be numb, because sometimes this is overwhelming. Well, what's, so what's the exit strategy? You know, what do you do? What's the support system in the industry? Well, they're starting to come around a little bit. You got Philip Foss at L Ideas, who's really starting to write aggressively on his blog and doing some books and things like that about sobriety. And, and, uh, but then you got, some, you got some other people. I'm not going to mention this guy's name, but you're going to know when, if you're a food person, you know, who beat his wife over the head with a wine bottle and lost his two-star Michelin restaurant. And in the course of six months, decided to go on social media, launch another restaurant, and, and claim that he was sober for a year and a half and do some kind of donation dinner that never went to where it was supposed to be donated to. Well, that's bullshit. And we don't have representation in the fellowships that I, that I work in. Because if, if I come up as a representative for Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous and I fail or I relapse, it looks bad for the fellowship. And it's not the fellowship that's failed, it's me that failed. So the point I'm trying to make is, where do we go? What do we do? There are so many different facets to this business that have nothing to do with cooking. Zero. Zero. But people are willing to pay, especially a George Trois, to come in and talk with me while I'm feeding them at a really high level. I'm proud of what we do there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's day to day. It's only as good as the last plate that I put out. That's a true statement. It really is. And that's heavy. Because, what, you know, what the hell am I going to do tonight? How am I going to outdo my... If I just gave this world-class experience yesterday, how am I going to outdo it? Well, I don't have to outdo it. I just have to keep doing it. And that's, that's not easy to, to, to navigate. It's very challenging to figure out how do I keep delivering a really high-end experience while I'm doing a brasserie right next to me and a mid-level fine dining experience right in front of that out of the same kitchen. I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes my cheese slides off my cracker in the kitchen, and I still get a little bit belligerent, and I still get a, but it's not like it was before. before I went, when I opened up Restaurant Michael 15 years ago, I had 52 W-2s. I turned the staff over six times, chasing them <laughs> out the back door. Plates just flying at them, shit everywhere. It was, it was a nightmare. Now, I've had 80% of my staff for uh, 13 years. And Sergio for five restaurants. He's a little bit nuts. Five kids? <laughs> Something wrong with that guy. But, uh, you know, Miguel, my chef, I made him a partner. He's been with me 14 years. Alfredo, who's the captain in George Trois, has been with me for 14 years. Salvador, one of my cooks, 14 years since I opened. In, in, that, in that location. Almost 15 years now. It's 14 and a half years. So some of it goes to, uh, you know, the fish stinks from the head. I'm really proud that they're still with me. And um, it's, it's a testament to the fact that I, I do what I say and say what I do. Even when I was getting high, I still never cheated anybody. I never stole their money. I never took anything from them. Um, it's also uh, perhaps a nod to the fact that they're a little bit sick and insane because they're just, you know, why would you stick with this? It's, it's crazy, but it's better. It's gotten better. And we have good things on the horizon. But man, there's going to be some choppy water. And it's easy to be captain on calm sea. 
But we're, we're heading in for some choppy water here, and it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. So maybe it's going to grow, and maybe it's going to fail. I have no idea. At the end, I'm still going to cook. Everybody saw Casino, at the movie Casino, Robert De Niro. In the end, he's still handicapped, and he's got the big thick glasses on and the pink leisure suit, and he's still... Okay, well, he's no longer a big hotshot, you know, mafia love letter. Now he's just still doing what he always did. So that's going to be me. You know, hopefully I won't blow up in the front seat of my car, but I'm definitely going to be cooking. So that's all I got. Yes, sir. It's, I only know um, what I hear, right? And, and purveyors talk, <laughs> suppliers talk. That's where we get the information. Um, in the Boca group, I think there's eight, 18 or 20. Now that they've opened a three in the hotel, I think there's maybe 18 or 20. Emlyn, you may know. How many, how many restaurants are in the Boca group? Do you know? Okay. So of those 18 or 20 restaurants, six of them are killing it. Just killing it. Girl and a goat. And Boca, the, 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 you know, the, the flagship, Boca, on Halstead. And um, Swift and & Sons is, a, is an affiliate of the Boca group as well. It's kind of a hybrid group. And maybe two or three others. They're doing really, really big numbers. And the rest of them are just, you know, catch as catch can. They're, they're doing the same business the rest of the industry is doing. Um, Alinea is Alinea, right? Alinea is an, uh, an entity all to itself. It's, it's, a, it's a unicorn. It's, they don't, they, it's, you know, it's lightning striking. Uh, but it's not going to be there forever. You know, Le Francais was that for a long time. Charlie Trotter was that for a long time. Everest was that for a long time. Ambria was that for a long time. I'm not going to try and bring Ambria back, which is that's a whole other situation. But, um, you know, it's easy to be uh, really arrogant when you're on top. I worked for Christian Zieger at Alouette. I was the last chef at Alouette in Highwood on Green Bay Road. And Christian was the originator of La Titi de Paris and Froggies and... Alouette, Amouret, Bacchus Nibbles. He was, he was a, a big player back in the day. And, um, you know, when I, there were stories before I got there at Alouette where Christian had a, had a line out the door to come in to eat at Alouette. And it was a beautiful restaurant back in the day. Um, and he would have people waiting. And if they got too upset or they got too un, unnerving, uh, he would say, here, me, I want to give you this. He'd give him $10. I, want, I got to be happy. You make my dining room unhappy. Here's $10. I want you to go to McDonald's. <laughs> he would send him to McDonald's. He said, get the hell out of here. You can't sit here. And now you could do that when you got a line out the door. But when that line dwindles and all of a sudden you're trying to get people in the door or trying to fill your seats, you kind of kick yourself in the butt for saying, oh, geez, I shouldn't have kicked these people out of my restaurant. I should have been a little bit more, uh, you know, hospitality-driven instead of hostility but that was Christian, you know? And that was a lot of, you get that arrogance when you're busy. When you have, and listen, the Alinea Group I respect across the board, up and down. Grant's a genius. He's, he operates on a different level. He's not a cook. He's a brilliant cook, by the way. He does have a great palate. You can't work for Thomas Keller and not for five years and not learn how to cook. He's an exceptional cook. He's a Cuisinaire. I, I've eaten at Alinea. And his, when Grant is cooking, it's, you can't touch him. It's great stuff. I would put, I'd put anything that I do with George Twop against anything anybody does in the city, by the way. That being said, he's a great cook and he's an innovator. He's pushed the boundaries. Nick, I respect equally. He's been to George Twop a couple times for dinner he's been, and he's helped me to push things forward at George Twop, giving me some direction. But the fact is, Nick um, can't afford to be flippant about the way that he uh, manages his business. He doesn't need the money. If you don't need the money, it doesn't matter as much. Right? This is Nick Akonis, is Grant's partner. And, but he's, he's also brilliant. Nick is brilliant. And what he's done with Tak 
the, the reservation system, and, and what he's done with that group, he's, you know, everybody needs a Nick Kakanis if you're going to be in this business. And that's why I put the group together the way I put it together. I patterned it after what Grant did with Nick. Nick, they're just, they're brilliant restaurateurs together as a team. Will they be as strong separately? I don't think so. Maybe, you know, I mean, they both were, were independently successful before they got together, but it, they're stronger together than they are apart. But that's groups like that Paul Kahn, right? One-off hospitality, Blackbird and Avec and, and, and the such, uh, Publican group, uh, all those restaurants. Um, Donnie Medea was in the George Trois for a party of six two weeks ago. He's a gentleman. He's such a sweetheart. He's really a sweet guy. But Donnie made his money in the clubs before he opened up Blackbird with Paul. So Paul was very fortunate to have found Donnie because otherwise Paul's just a cook. Really great cook, substantial talent, but he's a cook. So if you don't find the angel or angels that are going to propel you forward, then you, you, know, you just cook. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, I'm curious about Michelin ratings. Because I can think one restaurant in Chicago in particular that's got Michelin stars. And I was there once and I and it was very unattractive. It was not well served. I remember one all the glass everything that was brought to the glasses were all left the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, and I've done some research on this. I'm sorry? Yeah, so the question was, he, he, there, there's how much, well, the question, the, the point was, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, he's been to a Michelin star restaurant that's been, that's been rated and uh, found it not to be worthy of the ratings that it has. Is that the gist? Okay. So the ambiance was, was what he called into question. It's my understanding, after having researched this and talked to a lot of people and uh, gotten deeply into conversations about this, there's a bunch of different um, criteria for Michelin. All of them focus on the food and all circles around the food. That being said, everything else plays into the experience and how you feel about the food as you're eating it, right? Eating uh, uh, salmon on crout off of Villeroyenbach, China, or eating salmon on crout off of Chinette paper plates is two different experiences, right? Uh, drinking out of Riedel crystal glassware and drinking out of finger smudged, uh, thick Libby cups is a different experience. Um, that being said, it is all about the food. It's supposed to be all about the food. Now Michelin has a rating system and their rating system has been called into question for the 90 plus years, whatever, that they've been in existence. But the fact is they're unmarred by um, outside influence 
and they are not, they haven't been infiltrated. And it's very, you can't bribe Michelin. There is no way for you to draw them to you. Either they come or they don't. And that's how they've maintained their integrity as a brand and as a, as a, a, a rating system. And that there is no way to uh, weasel your way in. Either you get there or you don't. Now, it's interesting to me that the French tire company won't drive on their French tires an extra 10 miles north of the city to come and investigate George Trois. And as it turns out, um, I'm quite certain they have. And we are considered an espoir. An espoir is outside of the rating area, right? So they, it's a special trip to come in and, 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 and inspect you. And it takes time, right? So I'm going to draw Michelin to the suburbs. I, I promise you that. Or I'm going to die trying. And I might. I'm 50 years old. Now, if I make it to 60, I'm not wearing pants anymore. So I got 10 years to get this done. But I'm drawing Michelin out to the suburbs. And it, because I'm not going to give them a choice, because I'm going to keep cooking at a level that um, demands attention from them. Otherwise, it looks like they're not doing their job. So, but it's going to take years. It takes time. It's been, it's been, it'll, be, it'll be five years in October. So it's been four and a half years now. And that's okay. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to keep doing this. But what does Michelin uh, look for? What are, they, um, what are they expecting? What are the, what's the criteria? Hey, listen, six and one half a dozen the other, it doesn't matter. We just keep cooking. I don't know what their criteria is. Because I've been to some Michelin-rated restaurants, and I'm kind of like, wow. This is, this is one star, and this is one star. In my opinion, this one diminishes the one-star review for this one. Because this one is a... That's a mess. It was a hot mess. And the other one that has one star is exceptional. And to have them both have one star to me seems off kilter. But I'm not a Michelin inspector. Um, but I'm going to get them. I promise you that. I'm going to get them. This is vodka. No, I'm just kidding. This is, this is actually, are you going to laugh? So the question was, do, what am I drinking? And do I ever take a vacation to recoup and charge my batteries? So what I'm drinking here is... Um, Fiji water, right? With that, I've, I I drank it down to about here, and I put the rest in the freezer overnight, and I topped it off with a diet cream soda. <laughs> That's what I'm drinking. And the second question was, uh, second part of the question was, do I ever take a vacation? Yeah, I do. I don't take um, week long or two week long vacations. I take two or three days at a time, and I try to get away when I can. I try and do that at least uh, once every couple months, because otherwise, I become ineffective. You know, and I do take days off now. I never did before because I figured I don't need them. Well, as it turns out, I do. Everybody does. And anybody, I don't, I don't try to work anybody more than 50 hours, even management that are getting paid well. I don't work them more than 48 to 50 hours because they're completely ineffective. After 50 hours, I'm getting nothing out of you. The return on that investment is just aggravation for me. Go home. I'll see you tomorrow or I'll see you in two days. Take your kids to a movie because you're not helping me and you're not helping you and that's all we're doing is getting pissed off at each other, and then you're resentful. And then I'm going to lose them. So, yeah, I try to take time off now because that same scenario I just explained, uh, getting pissed off and resentments, that happens for me as well. That every time I tell Sergio I'm going to a meeting, his response every time is, good, please, share about me while you're there. You know, pray for me. But I go to a meeting, and they're happy that I do. Things go better when I come back from a meeting. It's good for me to have fellowship and know that I'm not alone. So sometimes those are mini vacations for me to get the hell out of there for a few hours or for a half a day. I'm a member at uh, Cigari International, which is in Wilmette. 
uh, cigar club on uh, Skokie Boulevard. And so that's, you know, 20 minutes away from the restaurant. It's a good way for me to get away for a couple hours during the day if I have time to do that. I'm a cigar fan. I'm sorry? Something about cancer. Yeah, well, if I get it, I get it. You know what? It's the last, that's the last of my vices. I can't, I can't drink. I can't do drugs. I can't eat crazy amounts of food. I can't just sleep with any woman that I want to. I'm going to smoke cigars. That's it. If it takes me out, it takes me out. We're closed on Mondays. No, never. Never. No, that's not, that's not sustainable anymore. You know, they used to, a lot of places used to do that. Um, some places still do. Rick Bayless still does that from time to time. But uh, I, I, don't, I can't do that. My cash flow won't allow that. And even if it does, why? Why, why would I do that? I mean, I could, if, you, if you have enough staff and you're treating them properly, I, you know, I can't quite frankly afford to pay them for being close for two weeks. And I, I, don't, I can't not pay them. They still have bills. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work for my business model. Maybe down the road, I don't know. But I, you know, if I give enough time off, and people have paid vacations when they work with me, you know, including myself now, which is great. 12 course. Mm-hmm. Well, the George Trois menu, you can actually look on, on, on the georgetroisgroup.com and see all the menus. They're all current. But the, so the, the, the George Trois menu starts with a cocktail. Right now it's a hot toddy. And the hot toddy consists of a Danjou pear cider with liqueur 43, which is a Spanish uh, liqueur, distilled liqueur. And that's poured table side. And that gets everybody a little bit looped before we start, right? So in case there's mistakes, they don't see everything. Everybody's a little drunk already. And then the first course that they're eating is a, a, a chestnut duo with truffles. Uh, chestnut soup and beignet with sliced truffle. And then the course after that is caviar. And the course after that is a foie gras course. And then there's a fish course, Dover sole, uh, wrapped around a lobster and scallop mousse and a hazelnut lobster juice. And then there's a game course. I do quail, stuffed with a gar- uh, duck and truffle sausage. And then there's a little intermezzo, palate cleanser. Then the main course, I'm doing a- A5 Miyazaki Japanese beef. And then there's a cheese course. Then there's a petite souffle. And then dessert. And then mignardise. So... So I can go on forever. Yeah, but it's small. Listen, it's the same amount of food volumetrically. It's the same amount of food as if you were having a three-course menu at Silonsu. You know, but it's not microscopic. When you leave, you know you're fed. Believe me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. I'll pay you in the parking lot. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes. So. Oh, did somebody just come in behind me? Uh, and you no longer in, uh, indulge in adult libations. Do you have creative non-alcoholic beverages? I do. Very hard to find. I do. I have a whole uh, non-alcoholic beverage program. Absolutely. Xander, who is my uh, operations and beverage manager, he actually, I'm going to out him. He's, he's been sober for a number of years as well. So he, and he's got, and he was in Wicker Park for seven or eight years. He was at Maud's and he was at a bunch of different restaurants and, and places when he was still drinking. And uh, he's developed a substantial beverage program for me and a third of it is non-alcoholic. It'd be silly for me not to. I mean, quite frankly, I make a lot of money when I sell uh, non-alcoholic beverages. But the fact is they're paired properly. It's not, we're not just, you know, it's not just apple juice and cranberry juice. They're served properly they're, they're, and they're curated so that they pair to the menu properly. Otherwise, it's a, just a, a waste. Who cares? It's a loss. It's, it's uh, Fiji water and cream soda. Yeah. Yeah. But they're served in beautiful glasses. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're presented just as if they were an alcoholic beverage. They're just presented in such a way that they're not, there's no alcohol. But the fact is, I get a lot of people who come in who have read my story. 
who know that I've been sober for a number of years, who know that I changed the way that I live. And uh, so they're, we call them friends of Bill W., right? Bill, Bill W. is the guy who, who, who initiated the whole uh, Alcoholics Anonymous program. So we're, friends, we're, all, we're all friends of the same fellowship, brothers of the highway and sisters. Um, so the question is, how does, a small, how does a small operator make it now? How does a small restaurateur independent operator make it now? And what makes it uh, successful on one corner and not successful on the next, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I know the answer to my equation is, is quite frankly, perseverance. I've persevered. I've pushed through. I've missed family obligations. I've missed weddings. I miss vacations. I miss a lot of that stuff. I don't miss them anymore because I have a staff now that covers me for all that stuff. Um, you know, I got married. I got divorced. I dated aggressively. At 430 pounds, I was dating aggressively. I'm very charming. I'm going to lie to you. This is good. There's no other reason to date me at 430 pounds except for the fact that I'm very charming. And I can cook. And I can cook. Yeah, exactly. Um, that aside, there's not a hell, of a, lot of hell of a lot of benefits. And 10 years ago, I was not marriage material, to say the least. But, um, you know, you, you, you give up a lot. You give up a lot. You really do. I gave up my 30s and my late 20s and my early 40s. So is it worth it? I don't know. I, mean, I wouldn't change anything. I wish I love it. I love it. I get to do, I'm going to cook my own funeral luncheon, man. I don't care. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what am I going to retire for? I got to have purpose. And this feel, it feels good to be able to do what I love and have people pay me to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. I get pissed off when people come in and I get a little sodium and I want this sauce, but I can have it on the side. And I'm a pescatarian. I don't eat this. I'm a vegetarian. You know who really pisses me off? 350-pound vegetarians. Did you just start today? Right? Is this a joke? You coming, are you coming for me specifically? Or you're, eating, you're living on peanut butter and cheese raviolis? Because that's, that's a bunch of bullshit. I, I'm sorry. There's no way. You know, or, or, or vegans who eat fish and poultry. So we get the hell out of here. What is wrong with you? You're making up your own category. Yeah, so I, listen, I don't, what makes it for you? I don't know. I think that you have to be fortunate in some regard. You have to, there's some luck that plays into it. There's no question. But it's, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work, and, and I, I used to tell my, my, my ex-wife this. I said, you know, don't, answer, don't ask the question if the answer is going to be a burden to you, because this is not for everyone. It's a roller coaster ride. It's, the chances are, um, if she, you know, she would ask me, and my mom would ask me, and my brother asked me, and how's it going at the restaurant? Ah, we're still open. We're still open. I'll be open tonight. That's, sometimes that was the answer, and that was good enough. You know, but generally speaking, never, it's never great. It's better, you know, it's pretty good. It's never great. Life still shows up. And sometimes it's not what I want to see. We got through, somehow, we got through Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, and Valentine's Day with no snow. Come on now. I don't know how the hell that happened, but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me at all. Which means it's probably going to snow on Mother's Day. Whatever, I don't care. I just did the roof in August, flat roof. And I got leaks. I had a leak that I had to have repaired because I had an ice dam leaking right at the curb where the HVAC unit is. So the ice gets in there, and then it melts and expands and contracts and expands and contracts, and now i got a leak. Okay, now i got to put heat coils up there and a roof drain where the water collects. Well, this is $3,000 on top of $24,000 I just spent on a roof in August. Now, what? Jesus Christ, how do you plan for that? You don't. You just roll with it. And if we put the drain in one month and the heat coils the next, then you know, before I know it, there'll be sun and it'll be summer. I'll, you know, we'll be all right. And the makeup air unit went out two weeks ago. $3,200 to replace that makeup air unit? 
open the door. We'll get some air coming in from outside. It'll be fine. Hey, I'm really cold. I don't care. I don't have 3,500 bucks to replace the makeup air unit right now. And when I do, I will. But you know, you, the makeup air unit is what gives you uh, air flowing into the exhaust system so you don't have a negative air situation in the dining room pulling open the kitchen doors and sucking out all the heat. Yeah, it seems, sounds important. Yeah, and it is. So we open the back door, we get a stiff breeze coming in, all the cooks wear hoodies and they're gonna live. That's it. Ah, that's bullshit now. It's, that doesn't happen that way anymore. It used to. I used to go to the market with Roland. I used to go to the market with Banchet, but they don't want us there. They don't want us coming over there picking out a case of something when you got Anthony Morano picking up three pallets or a, a truckload. We're in the way. They don't want us, you know, Southwater Market and all that, that stuff is gone. It's gone. You know, yeah, it's nice. Green City Market and some of these things, those are photo ops. Nobody is going and picking out their own produce every day because they're just so fussy about it. Yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. It really is. And you know what? If you've got time to do that, then who's cooking? Get the hell out of here. I'm, I'm sorry. I call bullshit on a lot of this stuff now because I've seen too much. I'm getting old. I became the dinosaur. I can say whatever I want to say. I don't care. Yes. Default. By default. Yeah. I'm not an artist. I'm a craftsman. Right? I'm a craftsman. I take what's already pristine and beautiful and I make it, I, I, I alter it. That's it. I am not an artist. I, and people, who, chefs who call themselves artists have an over-exaggerated sense of self-worth. And people who call us artists don't understand the industry. They don't understand the craft. Right? We're craftsmen and craftspeople. That's what we do. We, Mother Nature is the artist. It's beautiful. Apples are beautiful. Tomatoes in their pristine state are gorgeous. These things don't need to be messed with too much. And it's when they get over fussed with is when the, the art is lost. So um, everything that I do is fundamentally based in method and technique. There is no question about that. I am unapologetically French in my training. Um, that being said, I'm Polish and Italian. So the running joke is I'm the Polak Dago cooking French food for Jews with Mexican waiters. <laughs> We're the Statue of Liberty. I don't give a damn if you're purple. If your credit card goes through, you can eat in the bathroom. But we are, and I tell all of my cooks this too, and they're getting, my cooks are getting younger and younger and younger as I get older and older and older. But I tell them all the same thing. I said, you don't have to go into this thinking that you need to recreate the wheel. That's all you have to do is make sure that the wheel keeps rolling down the road. Because if you don't do that, then you have no chance. There's going to be times when you could recreate things as you're going, but you've got to keep moving. And in order to keep moving, you can't get bogged down in ego. And to call us artists feeds our ego. It's no good for me. I can't speak for any other chefs in that regard, but I know for me, yeah, that's under investigation. I'm not an artist, but I appreciate it. The fact that people think that what we're doing is artistic um, and they're willing to pay for that service and that product. Uh, but I tell them flat out that this is, this is, this is a, a, a crafting endeavor, not an artistic endeavor, because there's some artistic plating, some beautiful presentations and some gorgeous work that's being done. This is Grant. At Alinea. What he does is food is theater. Dining is theater. That's artistic. I don't necessarily equate the two as both being a culinary endeavor. One is, is science and art, and one is cooking. The fact that he's able to combine them is brilliance. Just brilliance. Yeah. I agree 100%. You know what? Paul Bocuse said this 50 years ago. Delicious food transcends nationalities and origins. Delicious is delicious. It doesn't matter where it came from. It could have come from France. It could have come from Italy. It could have come from Greece. It could have come from India. It could have come from anywhere. If it's delicious, it's delicious. That's it. It just tastes good. That's, that's really the end of the story. 
Any, anything else is just rhetoric. No. I don't know, I don't know that that's been done before. It's really, I mean, you, people can call it brilliance. What it really was was fear. It really was. What the hell am I going to do here? Oh, shit. We better you know, make this up as I go along. You know, but it, it's come together. It's creative. It was, it was def I definitely crafted something that I don't think has been done before. And um, we'll see. The proof is in the pudding. Is it going to work and launch me to where I want to go? I, th I, th I hope so. I think so. But it's damn sure better than it was a year ago. Last week was a record week. We did record revenues for the week for the property. This week, I'm going to do one-third of what I did last week. So it's, you know, it's like it's a roller coaster ride. Don't ask the question if the answer is a burden to you. <laughs> Oh, I am? There's no question about it. Yeah, it's insane. It was insane. People thought, well, I did it right after I got the award, too. We got the Restaurant of the Year Award for, for George Trois, and, uh, and I closed. <laughs> Everybody thought, and I let him go, I let him run crazy with the, with the speculation, too. I didn't say nothing. Oh, he's moving George Trois to the city. <laughs> I don't want nothing to do with the city. Nothing to do with the city. If I have to go uh, south of Evanston, I pass. I'm here because you asked me to be here. Otherwise, I don't want them to do with it. It's crazy. The city's broke. And it's become more and more expensive to operate here. And the, the, the state is broke. They're looking for quarters on the street. It's crazy. But yeah, it's, it was a risk. It was a, but it was a calculated risk. It really was, with some money behind it. But I'll take crazy, though, because that's, yeah, I, I kind of I operate in that little spectrum. It's okay. Uh, and somebody writes me a check big enough, and I'm held harmless, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But will I come in here on my own dime and, and be responsible for everything and, and personally guarantee things? Never. Not in a million years. Not on a bet. I'm too old. It's, I'm just, there's no way. That's not going to happen. I'm going to go for you know, smart money now. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the sure bets. Or the surer bets. The city is... It's tough. And people want us to bring George Twan to the city. And, I, and one, of the, one of the partners wants George Twan to the city. That's great. You write that check, and I get to maintain 54%, and you could do whatever you want. And I'll design the kitchen, and I'll cook the food. The problem with that is I remove one-third of my revenue stream from Winnetka. That's an issue. So you may want to consider that. If I leave George Twan Winnetka, I have to be in George Twan the city. I can't be in both. And part of the George Twan experience is me. So without that, somebody explaining these courses and giving a little bit of background on each one of these dishes, it's, it's a nice restaurant, but it's not George Trois. So uh, that's, that becomes a, a risky proposition. What if, what's the deal you have with your investors that don't expect to get a profit, but do they expect to get their investment back? Targeted 10% return. It's a target, and I, that word targeted, oh man, we labored over that word. You know, because you can get 18 to 22% in a good market. Right? If you're in the stock market and you're, you're, you're investing properly, you can get good returns. I'm not offering those returns. I'm targeting 10%. Right now I'm at four. But it's the first year. I'm going to get there. We'll get there. That's good because I want to, listen, and I have motivation. I'm 54%. If I pay out $10,000, I get 5400 That's good because I only take sixty grand a year as a salary. It's not easy to live on sixty grand a year. I got two dogs. <laughs> Right? And, and an expensive lifestyle and a lovely girlfriend who happens to think that I have money. She's, she's a little delusional, but we'll correct her. It's only been three months. She's still on the honeymoon period. Anybody else? Yes? Have you ever thought of a cookbook? I have. It's exhausting. What was the question? Ever thought of a cookbook? I have. I, people have presented the idea to me. And um, it's not just recipes. 
It's, there's a lot of research and development that goes into a cookbook to do it properly. Well, it has to be well written. It has to be thoughtful. It has to be. It's a job. It's a job. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, and does it? It doesn't interest me. To be very honest with you, I don't. I mean, I, I like I like having them and reading them and indulging in the recipes and, and the thought process. But uh, yeah, it's not my. It's just not my thing. Yeah, it's just, it's like being a parent. I don't think everybody's meant to be a parent. So thank God I'm not, because I would have just destroyed society with whatever spawn I had out there. That's a tough question. It really is a tough question. What's the, what's the, what's, what do I think is the new trend in food? The new trend in food is I think we're going to see less and less service and more and more self-service, more of these kiosks, more of these situations where you don't have um, uh, the, 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 the service that you've become used to as a restaurant uh, goer or as a, a client of a, of a dining experience. I think that it's going to become more and more automated. And I think the kitchen's going to become more and more automated. They already have. I think things are going to go into production where they're being, you know, recipes are being scaled up to production and being sent back in sous vide packages to be dipped in hot water and slid onto a plate because it's really, really cost effective. Higher food cost, no labor cost. Okay. With, with no, yeah, absolutely. And with no labor cost goes lower insurance costs and all the things that go with that. And there's less liability. And then you also have somebody else to blame if somebody gets sick, foodborne illness, right? It's the production company that sent you the product, provided that you're following all the, the rules properly and you have a HACCP plan in place and you're, you're following standard operating procedures, you're protected. It's a safer way to do business in the restaurant. It's also um, sanitized. It's, who cares? It's boring. If anybody could do it then, you know, and make money, this, this would be a saturated market, but it's, not everybody can do this. You know, it sounds great. Everybody wants to open a restaurant for all the wrong reasons. We're going to sit at the bar and drink wine and count money with our friends. <laughs> it always makes me laugh, and I always tell them, well, call me in three months so I can buy all your shit for 10 cents on the dollar, because I know what's going to happen to you, and you're going to be angry, and, and, and you've been disillusioned, and you've been sold a bill of goods. So what's the next trend? Um, trying to stay open, you know, trying to stay open. I think even big operators, even big groups, restaurant groups, they're, 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 autom they're automating what they're doing. They're making it more vertically integrated, meaning they're doing soup to nuts. Farm to table is no longer, that's always a bullshit term, by the way. If you're doing it right, you, of course you're going from farm to table. Where the hell else is it coming from? But to vertically integrate your operation and be able to supply yourself like have one central kitchen that's doing all of your fond or veal stock and all of your sauces and sending them out to 12 different restaurants and selling them to yourself? Smart business. It's smart business. I'll do the same thing. I'll have a central location that does all of my sauces and stocks for the restaurants and I'll send them out and I'll sell them to myself for a crazy elevated price. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of myself, I promise you. What's my door? It's more diversified. I mean, how do these migrants come and open? I mean, if the cost of business gets so high, how are they going to be able to open new restaurants and provide us with cuisine that we've never tasted in our lives? They won't. They won't be able to. They'll have to figure out a different way to deliver the product. So the question was, um, how, do, how do migrants and people who are supplying different cuisines from their native lands and their countries, how are they bringing food here in the future for us to enjoy and expand the culinary horizon? 
and operating independently. My thoughts are that that will cease to happen. I don't see that being a continuing trend. You know, right now, the, the hottest trend now is, is all of the um, Korean influence and Asian influence cuisine that's happening, Japanese and, and the, the Japanese tasting menus, things of that nature. That's going to run its course in a year or so. And, and, you know, food trends are interesting because they get to the point where they've become so um, diluted and so heavily marketed that it becomes white noise, you know. Remember pretzel rolls 20 years ago? Well, that was a big deal until Wendy's put a pretzel roll bun on their menu. And then you knew that that, was, that trend was over. You know, once it gets to fast food and mass production, that's it. It's no longer something that's artisan-driven. You know, yes? What do you think of the trend for food halls these days? I hate it. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. One is already closed. Yeah. yeah. And was, what did they think was going to happen? I don't... Food halls. What, what do I think about the trend of food halls? I think it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous to group... It sounds a lot to me like the food court at Stratford Square Mall with really beautiful stuff. That's great. But I mean, how many of these food halls can we support, number one? And... I, quite frankly, I don't want to walk around with, you know, 4,000 people that are all having taco grease dripped down their chin. Get the hell away from me. I don't like people in general around me that close. But, I, you know, I definitely don't want to be around them while they're eating and spitting food at me while they're talking and saying, excuse me. It's very weird. It's very weird. It's, it's very communal. It's lovely. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm getting too old for that shit. Well, I think that's always been a trend, and I, or it's always been part of the market, and I think it's only continuing to grow to be able to... I don't, I don't know that it's gotten more popular. I think it's gotten more publicized. And it's, become more, it's become more readily available. And the question is, um, what about the trend of seeing restaurants and, and operators reproduce their food to the mass markets and frozen aisles and the grocery stores, things of that nature? Um, but let me tell you something. I've, I've done a lot of research and development work. I've, done, I've worked for research and development companies in between opening Restaurant Michael and the end of Le Francais. And I was there for about a year and a half. And I, I've done some consulting with food profiles, flavor profiles. And the fact of the matter is, what I come up with as a recipe is, is here. And what they end up coming up with after they scale up to 10,000 pounds is the opposite end of the spectrum. There is just no way to duplicate verbatim a recipe that comes from my stove to meet the masses. It just doesn't work that way. There's too many things that have to be put in place for safety and for stabilization and for shelf life, etc. It just it's just not the same. It's just not the same. That being said, there is, you know, one trend that's really going forward, and this is maybe to piggyback off of your question before, sir, is what's, what are the trends that are coming up or what's going next? I have Aboyer. I just put Aboyer on DoorDash because if, and now DoorDash has taken 31% of everything that I sell, right? So I, rose, I, rose, I had to raise the prices. I'm not going to pass that expense on. If you want Aboyer in your dining room on a Wednesday night, I'm going to give it to you, but you're going to pay because otherwise I can't just give it to you and I can't do it for a, you know, a wash. I have to make money. It's a business. But I think that more and more restaurants are going to that, that delivery system. That we don't, I, don't, I can't employ a delivery person, nor do I want them floating around my restaurant. I don't know where the hell they're at, what they're doing. I've got to have them doing something. DoorDash is a viable option, especially in the North Shore. DoorDash is popular. Um, I haven't seen it take off yet because I haven't done the photo shoot yet. We haven't fully launched, but we're, we're dabbing. We're, we're, we're putting our toe in the water and figuring out packaging and figuring out how we're going to get this from one place to another and seeing what the menu looks like and what can actually travel. You know, nobody's going to do a souffle by DoorDash. 
you know. Oh, absolutely, just for takeout. Yeah, no, the prices at Aboye and the Cino are stable. They're fine. Well, I've had no choice. If you if you don't, you're, you're gonna you'll be off the. Oh, I don't have any idea. I don't. I, as a, quite frankly, um, the question is: Does anybody else raise their prices for delivery when they get onto a system like that? And my answer is: I don't care. I I won't. I won't even. I can't. I can't live my business life by what others are doing. I can take a peek at what the market bears in my area, but um, listen, I'm on the North Shore. Anybody who's not familiar with the North Shore, I'm going to tell you their houses are built on stacks of hundred dollar bills. And the reason they have it is because some of them are not willing to part with it. But if you want what I have to give you and nobody else can give it to you, then you're going to pay. And, and that's, that's the nature of the beast. It's supply and demand. If you can't afford it, then, then don't buy it. You know, if you have to ask me how much it costs, you can't afford it. And they can. Maybe they just don't want to spend it. Well, then that's good. They make your own steak. I don't care. Or come in here. I'll, I'll cook for you here. Last question. <laughs> it's a sad state of affairs. I do not, none of my problems being as heavy as I was and uh, all, the, all the, and none of that came from foie gras and lobster and, and uh, beef on croute. My problem was always uh, McDonald's and, and nutty bars. Shh, I eat garbage. I eat the same garbage that everybody else is addicted to in this country. That's my go-to. Right? My go-to is not luxurious cuisine. I don't want to sit in a 12-course tasting menu. And furthermore, I don't know anybody who wants to sit with me for two and a half hours while I'm in that 12-course tasting menu. So it's just that's not my style. I don't want to sit in somebody else's dining room either. I don't, I'm not comfortable dining out. I don't like it. It's, you know, if I can go for, a, you know, a, a, an hour, I'm a dream customer in a fine restaurant because I'm in and out in an hour and I'm tipping 35%. God bless. They're happy to have me. See ya. Here's your hat. Sorry, you got to go. But I'm not, yeah, I eat, I, I don't eat, I eat simply. You know, I do my meal prep, and I can eat the same thing every day for seven days in a week. And I'm completely okay with it, because it's structure. I need structure. Without structure, I'm a free fall. Michael in a free fall is bad for society. So that's why I try to keep it really, really just one foot in front of the other. Nothing fancy. I don't cook anything fancy for myself. My favorite food is junk food. Like, like fast food. I love fast food. Portillo's? Shit, I could tear up. I could tear up a beef salad. I used to live in Elmwood Park. Al's, oh man, come on now. Al's beef? Luke's on Harlem? Forget it. I was a frequent flyer. Yeah. Johnny's beef. Oh shit. Yeah, Johnny's beef. Yeah, that's it. Uh, that was, I think that was our last question. So, Yeah, anybody who wants to grab some, some chocolate truffles or potato soup before they leave, please do because that's, that's going with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.